Welcome, this is Coppercast, a new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment and crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is David Marsh, the co-founder and chairman of Omfith. After graduating Oxford University, David worked for Reuters and began a career of nearly 20 years with the Financial Times, where he became European editor in London. He's worked in the city at Merchant Bank Robert Fleming, Corporate Finance Boutique Hawk Point, and German management consultancy Droge. He's a visiting professor at Sheffield University and King's College London. He's authored six books, including most recently Six Days in September, Black Wednesday, Brexit, and the Making of Europe. And if that wasn't enough, he co-founded the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, which is an independent think tank serving the world of central banking, economic policy, and public investment. Earlier this year, OMFIF launched the Digital Monetary Institute to monitor and analyze the growing emergence of digital finance. He's a frequent commentator, given his extensive experience in finance and the European politics. But today, we're here to talk about where three fields converge, technology, policy, and money. David, in your show and tell segment, which to our listeners, if you haven't seen, please go to our social channels, it's at Copper HQ. You talk about the shifting landscape of payments and the role of public governance. Is, is this a defining moment for central banks? It is, without a doubt. And the reason is because the central banks realise that they are not present enough in this field. Many of them have got their roots in the 19th century. Um, Certainly, they are not always up to speed with all the latest developments that have been going on, say, in the last 20 years in the world of payments. And many of them have made huge advances in this area, but they realise there's a long way to go. One or two of the more advanced central banks have now got chief technology officers, for example, and they try to recruit far more people than in the past from, say, graduate schools of technology, science, research, people who are, say, polytechnicians from France who are involved in the higher world of mathematics and so on, so that they've got some young blood in their stream uh, that can help them to make sense of the new areas of technology. The central banks do realise that their world is changing and they've got to change with it. And I guess how much of a how much of a shift does this does this represent? Was it were central banks like purely concerned with policy? And, and to what point did did technology become a relevant policy issue? I mean, it surely isn't you know the advent of, of digital currencies. There must have been you know something else happening that lit the path for them. Well, if you think of the way central banking has evolved, say over a couple of centuries, then much of that time ha- has been a very antiquated technology. It has been literally ledgers of people writing things down in copper plate handwriting for at least, say, 150 years of of those 200 years. So all the leaps and bounds of technological advance, say, since the moon landing uh, in the last 50, 60 years, that that has coincided with a shake-up in the world of central banking. Uh, It's not just being policy, because, in fact, central banks often were not in charge of policies. They were often not independent. It was the governments that made the policies. They were doing some advising, and they got handsomely paid for that, but they weren't actually in charge of policy. They were actually doing the implementation. They were discounting bills. They were making sure that money flowed to the banking system, but often using very antediluvian technological means. The, The shift in payments, say, with credit cards and debit cards and so on for the last 30 years, of course the central banks have been part of that revolution. They've accompanied that. Uh, But don't forget, until relatively recently, we were a very cash-based society in the West. And so, as well as a bit of policy and the implementation of the government's policies, they were actually involved in cash handling, making sure people didn't steal banknotes, coins, and occasionally gold. Quite basic things. 
So when we're talking about them now advancing into the higher echelons of science and technology, it really is a new area. This has not happened overnight, but I would certainly think in the last 20 years there's been a, a whole sea change here, and that is continuing and certainly accelerating because of the general pace of digitalization of society. And has the, the year we've had, 2020, been uh, an accelerator on top of that in terms of, I mean, you spoke earlier about the, the movement towards cashless societies and just digital payments. Um, with the pandemic and people not visiting the high street and moving most of their commerce online, is that having an additional impact, an, an additional impetus to the central bank? Uh, it certainly has. There's been, of course, a bit of angst about whether cash itself, the banknotes, are a communicator of disease, mm. I know that the science on that, like in most areas of the pandemic, is rather equivocal. But some people, of course, do have uh, a fear of moving banknotes around because they feel that that might be a source of infection. And you see it in shops and so on, don't you, all the time? Please use uh, cashless payments. But it's mostly the ease and the convenience of using cards and the fact that lots of people are doing home shopping far more than in the past, where, by definition, you do have to use electronic payments, that has, I think, speeded up tremendously the, the pace of digitalization of payments. And therefore, something that was happening anyway at the beginning of 2020 is happening to an even greater extent now uh, at the end of 2020. Do you think that presents additional challenges to the central bank, so that the pace is quickening? Like, Were, were they ca- keeping up with the advances of society before the uh, pandemic uh, and w- now? Without a doubt, it's an additional challenge. Also, the public like to use these means, but the public in, in different countries in different ways are worried about the implications. There's the question about privacy, anonymity. The, the countries that have gone through totalitarian systems, Germany is a good case, on the whole are more angst-ridden about giving all their data away to a public body. And, um, and in fact, somebody once said to me, any country that's gone through a, an era where the state is listening into your telecommunications. And, of course, that, that happened uh, in Germany, both under the Nazis and also under the communists in East Germany. So that happened twice. They are particularly worried uh, about the state snooping. So, on the one hand, people might like the idea of digital payments because you can do it very, very quickly and it's relatively secure. The money normally doesn't go missing. And if it does, you normally get it back again. But they are very worried about anonymity. And the countries that therefore have clung to the idea of having, say, 500 euro banknotes are often the ones with a totalitarian past. And they think, slightly wrongly, I would say, that the cash is a, a, a kind of arbiter and a guarantee, guarantor of, of privacy. So the central banks, in other words, have got to confront all these human emotions, as well as the world of science and technology. They've got to confront these raw emotions about whether people are worried about Big Brother taking control of their lives. Do you think that could have uh, an impact on the... I mean, if we look at which countries are most advanced in the uh, experimentation or rollout of a digital currency, it's sometimes the countries that have um, a reputation for not snooping, but having more access to individual data. Well, you're putting it very mildly. (laughs) I mean, uh, China, of course, is the country par excellence where digital currency is most advanced. And that has everything to do with a system of state control. It's also one of the reasons why China has done pretty well in the later stages of controlling the disease. Because if you are in control of society and labor and capital, then you can really make sure that people don't move into the wrong places and infect other people with some um, further strain of the virus. So 
in other words, the expansion of the Chinese state's uh, ambit into the field of payments couldn't be done uh, without the enormous control that the Chinese state has over the system. I mean, that is part of the Chinese system. After all, whether you like it or not, that is a fact. And that is, if you like, one of the reasons why the Chinese state is no doubt doing it, is also one of the reasons why it's likely to succeed and why China will have a big advance in that field. The, the big question there is whether that can be extended to other countries, whether other countries, whether in Asia, Belt and Road Initiative and so on, uh, whether they'll buy into this system and say, well, look, we'd like to be part of this renminbi zone of future digitalized payments, or whether they'll say, no, thank you very much, we'd rather use the uh, system of Uncle Sam. Uh, the Americans, of course, also have controls, but they are less visible and no doubt they're less effective. So people will have to choose probably between whether they want to come under a kind of uh, communist Chinese system or a, a so-called uh, American capitalist system with a few European variations. There will be big choices, I think, being made by ordinary people as well as by institutions. Do you think there's opportunities then for central banks to collaborate with each other in ways they maybe haven't before, not just in terms of policy, but in terms of um, you know the physical output of, of the bank? So I, I know, for instance, there's a few banks in the UAE uh, and the Middle East that are collaborating on a central bank digital currency. Do you think rather than one one nation, one currency, there's an opportunity for you know a digital euro or something bigger well, to replace? Well, uh, uh, undoubtedly, and this is happening already. Um, clearly, if you've got a, a euro, which is 19 countries all banded together, then it's actually against the law to have an individual currency. You just cannot do it. So if somebody wanted to produce a, a digital D-mark, uh, they couldn't. The only way they can do it, actually, is by striking a commemorative coin. If uh, central banks did want to bring in their own currency in the euro area, you could have a commemorative Italian lira if you wanted to, to celebrate the birth of Garibaldi. And then you could do a digital ceremonial coin, but otherwise you've got to do it uh, as a joint effort. That is one of the reasons why the euro effort is actually quite slow, because they are quite a long way behind. It's much more difficult to get 19 countries to collaborate together than it is just to get one. Britain is relatively advanced, I think, in, in looking at this as a theoretical concept. And they've been hiring, the Bank of England have been hiring lots of bright young minds to work with them. They don't want to actually introduce a digital currency because they just feel the central bank could do it but the public doesn't want it. And they think that you could just develop the existing electronic payments very well to meet the needs of the public for access and security and a certain amount of data privacy. But all these central banks are trying to work both individually and jointly. There is a working party of seven central banks, which the Bank of England and the Bank for International Settlements are jointly chairing. And that involves the euro area, plus countries like the Swiss and the Swedes, which are outside the euro area. Big question will be how China collaborates with such a grouping and also how the Americans come on board. I foresee that under the Biden administration, the Americans will step up to the plate regarding digital currencies. Uh, many things uh, have not been done properly under Trump. And I think one of the things where Biden will try to seek some bridges with the rest of the world is in the digital field, because it would be quite clear that the Americans could be leaders in this area if they want to be. One of the charts that you presented earlier in, in the show and tell segment was um, it asks what the role of public governance will have. And 94% of the respondents said that the state should set the regulatory or technical standards and 88% said the state should facilitate innovation. Um, coming from a, a startup background, it, it almost seems like something of a paradox or an oxymoron to suggest they can do both 
I can't believe that they're going to uh, foster innovation. No, I think they will be trying to stifle innovation. That's one bit of the survey that strikes me as being maybe poorly understood or where the respondents didn't give the right answers. It strikes me also as being completely oxymoronic. The central banks uh, and the state can, if you like, uh, try to fertilise or catalyse innovation. They can invite people to symposia. I don't think they can do much more than that. I suppose I, in, in their defence, I guess they have sandboxes where they invite people in to, to experiment. Um, but I don't think we've seen anything sort of more cutting edge. Than I think than that's that. maybe what the respondents meant. To, if mm. one's trying to be kind to the respondents, that they were the central banks can indeed, or the states uh, can put together some sort of innovative practices. They can bring in universities and so on. So they can convene. I don't think they can drive. They can convene. Do you remember when you first heard about CBDCs as a, as a concept? Well, it probably was when we started to get involved with IBM about five years ago. And so there's a pal of mine who works uh, with us as OnFIF, so he described that to me. Um, I can't say it was a kind of flashing revelation. It wasn't like uh, some sort of biblical um, experience. It was just something that he Were told Were you dismissive of it at first, like that'll never happen? No, I just, banks just another never... acronym that I had to try to remember. <laughs> of course. Was it also your introduction at the time to cryptocurrencies? Like, had you heard of Bitcoin before? I, I think I'd heard of that. It mm-hmm. always has a vaguely James Bondish uh, aspect to it, didn't it? Uh, the fellow uh, stroking the, the cat <laughs> in the Doctor No, uh, who's behind uh, plans to take over the world. Uh, I, I hope uh, its reputation has improved since then. I don't know whether it has, really. Oh, no. no, I think it's still very much uh, the man who comes in with the steel jaws. Yes, I think um, cryptocurrency's got a way to go, I think, to improve its reputation it, it sounds exotic let's put it that way do you think cent, uh, like a central bank digital currency um, contributes to that like does that does it elevate the status of of cryptocurrencies by being you know loosely related to each other well they are very loosely um, i think if anything uh, central bank digital currencies to the extent they they take off and to the extent there's more publicity about it and the extent the ordinary man or woman in the street knows about it that will actually help cryptocurrencies it will kind of bring it in from being something very exotic uh, vaguely uh, uh, nefarious, bordering on criminal, (laughs) into something a little bit more the mainstream. So I would have thought there'd be a positive interaction once these things get going. And Of course, the cryptocurrency people don't often help themselves by often being a bit weird, uh, and therefore they probably have to become a bit more central bankerly, and the central bankers have to become a bit weirder. Well, we're doing our part here, I think. There's a convergence, (laughs) I think, an osmosis going on between the two sides. That's good. Um, OMFIF is a a fairly young, but it's a very established organization. Uh, I'm sure due in no small part by your network and your connections and and your history. When did you guys begin considering the Digital Monetary Institute within OMFIF? Relatively recently, I have to say. Uh, My friend who came up with the idea about um, forming an alliance with IBM one thing led to another, and we suddenly decided that this was really worth promulgating as a business line because there were so many other institutions that we didn't know very much about but all seemed to be incredibly interesting. Uh, one of them is, of course, Copper, who came along and said, can we get involved? So we thought, well, why don't we set up a receptacle? So it was rather opportunistic, I have to say, and I can't say that it was all planned from the word go. Of course not. No, uh, we rather made it up as, it, as we went along. We realised there was a demand for this. And we also realised that central banks were clamouring to get involved in this area. That, I think, was for us the defining moment. So we thought we'd better do something about it. And we are a forum, that's what the name says. So let's provide a way whereby people can interact with each other 
in a non-threatening, non-commercial and non-lobbying way uh, and have a deep-seated set of interactions in an almost academic setting, actually, mm. so that people can talk to each other without fear or favour. They're not trying to win contracts from each other, at least not overnight, uh, and they're trying to l- genuinely learn from each other. So that was the inspiration behind it. But I can't say there was some great blueprint that we decided five years ago we're going to set up something called the Digital Monetary Institute. No, it, it, it happened much more as an iterative process as a result of developments going on outside, which we didn't know very much about, but we decided this is really something we want to be involved in. And as a forum, what kind of what kind of threads have, have come out of it? Is it something that the wider OMFIF uh, organisation has looked at and seen like, wow, the, the stuff that DMI is producing is really at the forefront of, you know, what our policies should be considering, what technologies we should be considering? Is it, is it sort of leading on for the it, moment? It, it, I wouldn't say it's leading it, but it's, it's a huge uh, factor accompanying us. For example, uh, the fact that the, the banks that are the mainstream, the lifeblood of the financial systems, do make a huge amount of their profits from the basic business of payments, and the fact there's a whole load of other new companies you know, not just the Facebooks and so on of this world, but a whole slew of other companies that are not well known who are trying to move into that area and are disintermediating the banks from their prime functions or one of their prime functions. That's enormously important mm-hmm. uh, for the world as a whole, for the economy, not just for the uh, ethereal world of central banking. So I wouldn't say this DMI is, is driving what we do, but it's a very real input into everything that we're looking at and also, we do realise it's the number one topic for speaking to central banks. There seems to be lots of forums where people can talk about macroeconomics and policy and the interaction with the fiscal area and so on. There don't seem to be all that many forums for where people can talk about this digital revolution that's taking place. So it's certainly not exclusive. There's lots of other people trying to do the same thing. But it's an area where I think we've got a bit of a cutting edge. And, and if we can, we mean to try to preserve that. I suppose 2020 being the year it's been, the, the, the macro outlook and the, the wider policies, fiscal policies are dominating, competing with that you know, digitization um, idea as well. What are sort of the, some of the impacts and some of the biggest ideas that are coming out of OMFIF about you know, the wider macro policies at the moment? You, you shouldn't rely too much on central banks to get you out of trouble. That's really the, <laughs> the number one learning. Um, central banks have certainly done... A lot, and they have been a very effective backstop. But they're actually quite fragile organisations, and they're only men and women like everybody else. They're, they're, they're fallible. So unless there is some sort of major sea change in the world economy uh, towards becoming more productive, to, uh, less uh, embittered, shall we say, m- more multilateral, less... Uh, split off into lots of silos and that's unfortunately been the trend in the last two or three years partly because of the Trump administration then I think the central banks alone will not be able to get this uh, cart out of the mess that it's in at the moment so central banks are very important but they're not so important that you can rely on them through thick and thin at the end of the day it's the governments that have to do the work and of course the governments are hugely challenged in most countries anyway, not in China, by the need to get elected every four or five years. I must say I'm very positively influenced by the outcome in America. I do think that has been a shift for for the better in terms of not just the election result, but the way that 
the body politic in America has shown itself to be big enough uh, to take this renegade, uh, who was after all fairly elected in a democratic process, this maverick, Mr. Trump, and eject him in uh, a polite, civilised, non-violent, but a very decisive manner. I think that's extremely important. And I do think that the Biden administration will be much more multilateral in its approach. And therefore, uh, as a result of that, perhaps there will be less reliance on less reliance on the central banks. Do you think it'll take quite a while to maybe unwind some of the previous administration's impact and policies? Do you think Biden will be able to hit the, the ground running and, and there'll be an immediate... Yeah, I, I, I do, absolutely. I mean, the American state has been around since 1776, or when the War of Independence started. Uh, so four years. There's been a lot of American presidents over the last... 250 years who've been slightly mad (laughs) Um, Mr Trump is I'm sure not the maddest of them all and the American state has rolled on so yes I am absolutely confident that the Americans will get over this and closer to home you're um, an author on on the topic of Brexit and we're on the cusp of it I'm not sure if this episode will come out before or after the eventuality of a deal or no deal I mean how are you optimistic about our, our own future here closer to home not very in, in the near term. I mean, we have, after all, left the European Union now, so what we're talking about now is the trade deal post-Brexit. The government has made an awful mess of this, uh, and I can't remember a, a government that's been more incompetent in so many different fields. So that doesn't make me very optimistic at all. Um, I think that the rest of Europe is going through a difficult phase as well, and if we're lucky, we'll be able to make the best of where we are now. Don't forget, the rest of Europe is our biggest trading partner, and if they succeed, then we will, Britain will, and if they don't, we won't. So we are dependent very much on what goes on in France and Germany and Italy and the other countries. And I see a bit of positivism there, particularly in Germany. So I'm not uh, optimistic at all about the short-term outlook for Britain. I think it's going to be a bit of a mess for the next six or nine months. Longer term, um, it'll take time, I think, to get over the shock of Brexit, longer for Britain than the shock of Trump in the United States. So uh, this will hold us back, without a doubt. The, uh, not, not just the fact we're leaving the European Union, but the fact we've done it in a very disorganised and incompetent way by people who manifestly don't know what they're doing. That is not a, a subject over which you can have any optimism at all. Will the British people somehow rise up and bring in a, a, a new set of people running the show well no doubt they will but um, we could easily have the longest period of conservative rule um, over and beyond the next election in in uh, 2024 we could easily have the longest period of conservative rule that we've had in the modern era so there's not really a change in store uh, and that again distinguishes us i think from the americans so i'm i'm a lot less optimistic about the british than i'm about the americans I guess, I guess uh, there's probably more stuff to unwind in our case, right, than, than four years of, say, Trump. We've had about 40 years of the EU. Well, you, you've, we, we've been in the European Euro Union and started off the European Economic Community since 1973, so we are talking here in, indeed about 47 years. That does take a long time. Um, we will continue to be bound into Europe in all sorts of ways. There will be a trade deal, without a doubt. And there'll be all sorts of rules and regulations running how we export and import from a bunch of countries which happen to be our biggest trading partner by far. So clearly we are going to be part of Europe without a doubt. Uh, unwinding the, the European Union part of that will take time. The government hasn't made it any easier by being so incompetent in, in the last four 
and a half years since the referendum. This is almost as long as the Second World War, this period that this has been going on. And yet so little has actually been done. That, that is very pessimistic. I guess uh, working on the digital side of things, uh, the DMI does, and uh, as we at Copper do, I, I have to hope that there's some enterprising, bright young minds at the, the Bank of England and the uh, Treasury and you know, whoever else is part of the Crypto Action Task Force that see it as an opportunity to sort of drive forward a, a digital euro or a digital uh, pound. And well, uh, undoubtedly they are. Uh, I think they are saying, let's improve the current uh, electronic payment system. Let's also make sure that people who are uh, very poor... Um, and don't forget the pandemic has uh, exacerbated the inequalities in society. Let's make sure that they actually have access to money and credit before we start thinking about all kinds of fancy new innovations. And I think the Bank of England does have a bit of a social conscience. Uh, it does have its mission to improve the well-being of the British people. Uh, and that is much more important, I think, than catching up uh, with the rest of the world and making sure that we're the leader in digital payments. It's just getting right what we do at the moment and also making sure that the inequalities don't get even worse, which will have severe impact on the fabric of society. I think the Bank of England is far more involved in that part of the equation than they are in simply promoting a technology for technology's sake. But undoubtedly, they are lots of bright people uh, working in all these different institutions. I would like them to be better guided by the politicians. And so those of them who are gifted and have these individual traits could actually maybe bend their energies and train their minds in a more propitious direction, if they were given better political guidance. that, Or, shall we put it another way, if the present lot of politicians were not so foolish and incompetent, they, these civil servants might have more time to, to direct their energies into more creative fields. I feel like that's a slightly more optimistic outlook. <laughs> Ever since a little bit more. You're dragging me towards <laughs> yeah. a bit of optimism since it's Christmas. There's some light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Um, this has been really uh, insightful and a fascinating conversation, David. Thank you for, for coming in. We have a, a series of questions that we ask everyone, if you wouldn't mind us running through this them Is this about uh, what is your favourite moment in your life so far? L yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we, uh, we'll start with, um, where do you see central banking as an industry in one year versus ten years from now? Do you mean, is it a good place to work? Um, is it a secured employment? Is it going to be a fun place to be? What, what do you mean? Well, just in terms of um, how it operates, do you, do you see it fundamentally changing? I mean, presumably not in the next year, but in, in 10 years, do you think uh, there will be, you know, the seismic shift that we described earlier, is it going to result in something? I, I, I don't think it will. I don't think there will be a seismic shift I even in 10 years. I mean, don't forget most people who work in central banks are connected with these these basic functions of setting and implementing policy and then still shifting uh, banknotes and coins around there's still a tremendous amount of that going on i think at the margin that there will be a lot of uh, bright often rather youngish individuals will be moving into that but it won't be a seismic shift the number of economists working in central banks of course has ballooned in the last uh, 20 years so it's a good place if you're an economist if you're graduating uh, from a, a decent university or research school um, go and work in a central bank. I would definitely say that. And I think as a result of that, that as a repository of talent, these places will become more dynamic and, and more interesting. But I don't think there'll be an absolute seismic shift. One thing I do see is that the developing country central banks will become more important as time goes on, and they will be thought of often as a, a source of advice and competence and wisdom uh, on a par with their peers in the advanced countries in the West. If there's one thing you could change about central banks, what would it be? 
I, I would uh, change the number of cars that they own, and I would probably get more of them to uh, go on uh, on the tube. Quite a few of them do, actually. I would uh, get them to spend uh, less time at very formal meetings uh, and more time at OMFIF meetings. <laughs> and I would also ask them, when they do write their memoirs, to do this in a relatively brief way, that books that weigh uh, half a hundred weight, I would say, don't have much of a place in the future. I would also get them to involve themselves even more than they do already with universities and centres of learning. I think a lot of them are doing that, actually, not just in their own countries, but further afield. So I, I would invite them to become um, more advanced, shall we say, in promoting academic learning. A lot of them do that already. And I would also say they should go into schools more often. Uh, they, they deal a lot with universities already, but they should probably start with the younger people. Some of them do, again, the Bank of England, I think, is here quite exemplary. So th there should be as many central bankers visiting schools uh, as there are visiting the commercial banking economics departments of, of major institutions. So there's quite a list of different things I would yeah, do, actually, quite one if thing, I was dictator. Uh, yeah, um, I guess the number of that is just collaboration, right? They just need to be more... Yes, uh, they are They are becoming... They are, or they already have been, uh, let's be fair, quite open. But they need to become even more open to the outside world. And I think a lot of them are doing that already. They don't, don't need you or I to tell them that. But I would just push that a little bit further. Is there a piece of technology that, in your personal life, you couldn't live without? A record player? What's, it, what's, uh, what's on the record player right now? What's well... Um, it's obviously not a record player. It's more. It's one of these Spotify things. But I do have. I do have lots of records. I have to say, and the one that really um, still rather occupies me is the. Uh, I've been listening to quite a lot of Beethoven's Fidelio. Maybe it's got something to do with Beethoven's the year of the birth and the celebration and so on. I have to confess, I'm not familiar with it. No, no. <laughs> anyway, it's all about uh, people escaping from prisons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look it up and maybe we'll play it in, yeah. the, in the outro. <laughs> That's right. That could, that, indeed, you could put that on. It's okay. actually very inspiring. Okay, um, what does your weekend look like? What do you do with time off? Do you uh, get time off? Yeah, yes. Yeah, well, when I can, I play tennis. But in fact, I've been flitting backwards and forwards from Germany. I've got to go back. I'm going back. The my wife is there currently with a couple of our children, even though they're now relatively grown up, but they're just visiting. So I need to go back there on Friday, actually. Yes, so... It, it's um, a, a lot of it is sort of seeing friends and all the usual kind of things that people do. And when the concert halls are open, uh, hopefully going to see the odd concert. Do you have any films that um, you could watch over and over again, never get tired of? Well, one that I have seen a great deal um, is the, it is actually a very old film and, and I think probably not something that you would really talk about that much but it's called the guns of navarone it's one of these wartime dramas um i i think all the films with uh, you know, uh gregory peck and uh, the alfred hitchcock hitchcock films i think where it's all fairly predictable who is the murderer but it's still uh, full of tension those kind of films black and white films i think i i, I rather like more than anything else fair enough um who should we all follow on twitter Oh, I've got really no idea. I, You're I, on Twitter, uh, David. Come on, I follow yeah. you on Twitter. <laughs> no, I, I think that Twitter is a bit of an aberration, really. No, so I, I would follow people on Twitter who don't have a Twitter following. 
Okay. <laughs> Counterintuitive. Okay. Um, what was the last thing that happened that surprised you? I think it was, well, most things don't surprise me that much. I was going to say my, my wife claiming that she's won bets off me when she hasn't really. <laughs> we do tend to have bets on who's going to win the American elections and things like that. Um, I suppose it was just the last thing, just very recently, but perhaps it was slightly surprising that that Mrs. von der Leyen went back to Johnson and said, let's reopen these talks. That only happened a couple of days ago. Um, the other thing maybe that happened slightly surprising, a rather banal thing, is that the British actually, when I came through the immigration control a couple of days ago, they actually closed down the electronic gates and had people at the passport control asking to look at your passenger locator form, whereas when I'd been to Germany just a few days beforehand, they didn't do that. You'd have thought it'd be the other way around. You'd have thought that the British would be somehow less punctilious than the Germans. Yeah. It just shows that the British and the Germans are becoming more like each other. I suppose better late than never on some of these things. Maybe, yes. They didn't look at it uh, with a great deal of accuracy, but they did look at the form, whereas the Germans just really didn't want to know. Um, if you could recommend someone else to be on our show, who would you, who would you recommend? Um, I would get David Beckham. Okay. I'll put in a call. That, that sounds he, like an easy he, one. He's bound to be interested in all this stuff. Isn't yeah. he? he could become your brand mascot, couldn't he? And a brand ambassador. I think he'd go down pretty well. We could bring him into the DMI as well. You could indeed. Well, if you get him to come onto your show, um, get him to come uh, and do something for the DMI at the same time. The, the, I mean, somebody really very interesting, which you maybe you should go to, would be the president if talking about kind of state figures, the president of the Bundesbank, Mr. Weidmann. Um, why not, Julia, that we should get him to go? If you can facilitate an introduction, I, uh, I will no, graciously he, host him. He's actually an incredibly pleasant, charming, polite man. And we know his head of communication, Mika Best, to Julia. She just has to sweet call Mr. Best. And then there you are. I, I think he would do that. I mean, it would be remote, uh, you, unless you said, Weidmann, I want you in the office, <laughs> 9 o'clock on might Tuesday even, morning. We might even go to him for that one. I you guess, might do. If they'll uh, let us I in. think they've got a spirit of fun, haven't they? They like this kind of stuff. Cool. And, and th they are the people who are trying to move with the times. They have a very good staff magazine, which they send me, for example, and they'll have an open day where this uh, chap kind of meets all the people who adore him in Germany. A bit like a we can jump in the queue and we'll. But there we we'll are. Meet so I definitely do. I, I think there'd okay. be a strong chance that he would say yes for that. Uh, particularly if you said I'm going to go to you. I mean, yeah. how can they turn you down? <laughs> well, David, thank you very much for your time. This has been a really great conversation, and we appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. No, and I, I hope that I, next time I can learn even more from you than I have today. Thank you. Perfect. And to our listeners, if you haven't already seen David's show and tell, please go to our YouTube page. It's at Copper HQ, or you can find it on Twitter or on our website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, subscribe. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, please give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And the show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown and Tally Spear, with support from Maylee Mountford and Eva Leela. New episodes come out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.